Well, welcome to Graceway Baptist Church. This is our Sunday school time, and we are going through the miracles of Jesus again, and we're talking about Jesus and the temple tax. This is a unusual, uh, maybe some might say even a weird story that takes place, and even kind of a weird miracle. Uh, it's the kind of thing that uh, would be kind of cool if you ever did happen to... Uh, throw out a line, catch a fish on the first catch. That would be, for some people, a miracle, wouldn't it? And then when you open the fish's mouth to take the hook out, you find money in it, and especially if it were enough money to pay your taxes. I think everybody would be pretty excited about that. But uh, that's the miracle that we're going to look at here. And I, I think you can already see it's somewhat different than the other miracles of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, uh, there's a point to this. Like we have uh, said before, these miracles uh, pointed to Jesus and illustrated truths that he wanted uh, us to know about. And so our text this morning is going to be Matthew chapter 17. We're going to look at verses 24 through 27. And it says in verse 24, when they had come to Capernaum, those who receive the temple tax, and uh, nearly every translation has temple in there, but you should have it where it's italicized. That means it's not in the original Greek, okay? It would actually read those who received the tax, and they put that in there, the temple tax, for clarification. That's what kind of tax um, that it was. It wasn't for the Romans. It wasn't for any of those type of things. And uh, that also is put there so that we understand a particular truth about this tax. And it says, they came to Pe uh, Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax, the temple tax? And he said, yes. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him. That's kind of like your mom waiting for you when you're late for curfew. You know, she's anticipating when you come in, it's not always a pleasant thing, is it? Jesus anticipated him, saying, What do you think, Simon? Now, here's another thing, too. Jesus sometimes called Peter Simon, which was his old name before he met Jesus. And sometimes he calls him Peter. One of the things that you will notice, I'm not sure if this is 100%, but... Uh, a lot of times when Jesus says Peter, it's because Peter is in a good place. When he says Simon, it means he's not. He's wrong about something. And Peter uh, was typically wrong about a lot of things. Occasionally he got some things right, didn't he? But sometimes he was wrong. And uh, it's as if Jesus is saying, okay, Simon. You know, And as soon as he would say that, Peter uh-oh, what I do now, okay? So he says, what do you think, Simon, fleshly one? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Verse 26 says, Peter said to him, from strangers. And Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. They're not subject to any kind of a tax. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, 
go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. And when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. What a strange situation here. Well, let's talk about this in this way. First of all, consider with me Peter's presumption. Okay? They had come to Capernaum. Those who received the tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher pay the tax? And he said, Yes. Now, is there any particular sin in that? Uh, probably not so much on Peter's point. I don't think Peter was... This is not like the denial of Christ. You know, Jesus warned Peter about that and said, I prayed for you. Satan desires to have you. You know, you'll deny me before the rooster crows. I mean, he told him everything, and Peter goes in, and even though he says, I'd never do that, he does it, right? This is not like that. This is not like that at all. This is something that people... Uh, pardon me, Peter answers, and he answers it probably the way you would for anybody else. I mean, think about this. If somebody came up and they said, uh, Peter, aren't you one of the 12? Yeah, I am. Well, what about Bartholomew over there? Does Bartholomew pay the temple tax? And Peter would go, well, of course he does. And that's kind of what Peter is saying here. When they ask him this, it's an unguarded moment, an unguarded question, and uh, his answer of yes is sort of like saying, well, of course he does. You know, is the Pope a Catholic? I mean, of course he pays this. Everybody pays this tax. In fact, uh, if you remember back when we were in the book of Exodus, there was a tax that was collected, a half shekel tax for anybody over the age of 20, any male over 20, excuse me. And they were to pay that for the upkeep of the tabernacle. I mean, um, make, make sense, that tabernacle is going to have to last from the time of Moses all the way through the building of the temple by Solomon. That's a long time. It's going to be portable. It's going to be moved. It's going to be in rain. It's going to be in hot sunshine. It's going to be taken up. It's going to be set up and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And so they've got to fix things up. They've got to keep things up. And so they would take that tax and they continued that after the uh, Temple of Solomon was built. And uh, Solomon's temple was later um, rebuilt after the exile. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it. It's rebuilt after the exile. And um, that's where the people gathered at the laying of the foundation. And the old people that remembered Solomon's temple, they wept. The young people who had no remembrance of it, they were born in Babylon, they rejoiced at it. And um, so you have two different perspectives of things. And it really was nothing like Solomon's temple until Herod the Great, the guy that wanted to kill Jesus, remember, in the Christmas story? Herod the Great refurbished that temple, added on to that temple, and there was a huge, huge building project. And uh, the temple now was uh, maybe not quite what Solomon's was, but it was, it was awfully nice. And they were proud of their temple and proud of it. And Herod didn't do it because he was a real worshiper. He just simply wanted to, you know, throw the Jews a bone so that they wouldn't riot or rebel or anything like that. And they would think of him as kind of a good guy. And so those buildings are expensive. 
and they're expensive to keep up because you've got to keep things polished. You've got to keep things nice. You've got to replace what wears out. You've got to replace what deteriorates. You've got to constantly clean it up. I mean, folks, stop and think about all of the blood of the sacrifices and everything that would go on there. You've got to clean it up. Repairs, all of that is made. And so Peter answers yes. And again, I don't think there's any particular sin in it, but it did uh, merit the Lord saying something about it. Now, think about this. The ones who ask were trying to stir up trouble. This is not a question for information. This is a question that is being asked to be able to use as ammo against the Lord Jesus Christ and against his followers. And think about this. Jesus, as God, would have been the object of worship had they understood who he really was. Okay? Jesus should have been in the temple with people bowing before him, but of course they're not going to do that. And uh, so now Jesus is just being treated as though he's just a common, everyday yokel like Bartholomew, right? And yet Jesus is the God-man, the Messiah, the one who had been prophesied. So the assumption was that Jesus was nothing more than a mere human, and therefore he was just as subject to the temple tax as anyone else. So when you think of it like that, Peter should have said, uh, well, let's think about this, guys, and then gone to an explanation of who Jesus was and um, how he was exempt from all of this because of that. But instead, he answers in a presumptive way, and uh, in spite of all of the signs and the prophecies and the miracles, he just gave a thoughtless, impulsive answer, which is kind of like him, and it was a severe error, severe error. What was so bad about it? Because the question and answer presumed that Jesus was merely human and therefore a sinner. Think about what that is really saying about the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and the Son of God. You're no different than we are. You're no better than we are. You're just like us, a sinner. Now, that also has implications, too, because the reason Jesus came was to die on the cross as the unblemished sacrifice. To make him subject to this temple tax is kind of saying you're no different, no better than anyone else, and therefore it implies, doesn't actually say, but it implies that he would have been unqualified to die on the cross for our sins. So when you think about Peter, his answer, the word yes that he gave, he didn't know he was doing all that. He didn't mean it that way. But Jesus confronts him on it because that's exactly what was happening. Now, if Jesus just left it alone, you could say, uh, preacher, that's just a bunch of unwarranted speculation. Well, there has to be a reason for point number two, and that's Jesus probes. He probes deeper. He wants Peter to think. Have you ever noticed how the Lord does that even now? Have you ever noticed that, uh, well, let's talk about this. A proper understanding of this particular miracle and what is happening in it is going to probe the understanding and the assumptions 
and maybe even the conscience of the people that you're teaching. There are so many things that come up that we assume that we know, we think we know. I can uh, ask my granddaughter Emma a question about something and she will give me an answer more often than not. Even if she doesn't understand anything about it, she has an answer. And in her mind, it's a good answer. Makes sense, makes sense to her. But, uh, you know, we kind of laugh at it and it's kind of funny because it doesn't actually make sense. And she'll know that one day, but not now. Well, this is the same thing that we find Peter in his immaturity and in his ignorance. He didn't see anything wrong with it. And so Jesus is going to probe him just like he does us so that we have to think. Don't check your mind at the door when you go to church. Don't put your mind in neutral when you read the Bible. Think, love the Lord with your mind, Jesus said. And so when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him. He's waiting for him, in other words, and saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? So we know that Jesus knew the whole situation. And Jesus knew what Peter had been asked. Jesus knew what Peter had committed himself. Well, wait a minute, back up. Jesus knew what Peter had committed him, Jesus, to. You know, it's one thing when you commit yourself in kind of a dumb way. It's another thing when you commit someone else. My dad was a mechanic. And I remember in high school, there were some people that were broken down and um, I said, hey, my dad will fix this for you. Well, I never should have said that. Uh, it turned out to be a <laughs> kind of a messy situation in there. But my dad and a couple of other people, they actually did do it. But uh, I remember my dad telling me, if you want me to do something, it's probably better if you ask me first. You know, this might have been a situation where the wisest thing Peter could have done was to say, I'm not sure, but I'll find out and then go ask Jesus the question and let Jesus answer it. So Peter could go back and give the Jesus answer. Boy, don't you wish we did that a lot? So many times we run our mouths, we shoot off our mouths and then we go, well, maybe I better go look in the Bible and see what that says. Maybe I better go ask a teacher. Maybe I ought to ask a deacon or an elder or the pastor. Maybe I need to check this out and make sure that my assumption is right. And so Jesus knew what was happening. And Jesus is teaching Peter to think, okay, theologically, theologically. Now, if we don't want to be like the Jews of Jesus' day, we better think and we better think theologically. See, the Jews of Jesus' day did the same thing that if we're not careful, you and I will do. They said the right thing in church and they amen to the right thing in church and they would have been ticked off if anything wrong had been said in church. But once they walked out the doors of the temple, once they walked out the doors of the synagogue, once they walked out the doors of the church, they just left everything they had just learned in the church, in the synagogue, in the temple. They didn't really carry it through in everything of life. And the disciples did all of this, uh, this same type of thing to a degree as well. 
Jesus would tell them. How many times did Jesus say, how long do I have to put up with you, faithless generation? O ye of little faith, O faithless ones. You know, there's so many times the disciples should have known better, but they compartmentalized everything. This is a good answer for here and for this time. Then forget it and go about your life. That's what humans tend to do. You and I tend to do the same thing. And Jesus is saying, Peter, stop and think and think theologically in a God-centered way. Let your theology and let your doctrine rule your thoughts in everything, not just Sunday morning, not just at certain times and places where it's appropriate, but in everything, in your workplace, in your parenting, in your marriage, in your school life, everywhere you go, you've got to think theologically you're going to be wrong. Now, theology and doctrine are for more than just church. It's more than just giving the answer that you learned in Awana. It's more than just giving the answer that you learned in Sunday school. When we went through the um, Love and Respect series, the guy that was on there, he talked about that. And he talked about the little kid that was in the uh, 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 preschool department. And the teacher said, what is fuzzy lives in trees and eats nuts? And you remember, it's a corny joke, but it gets the point across. The little kid said, well, I was going to say a squirrel, but since we're in church, I'm going to say Jesus. And that's the way we tend to do. We give these answers that we think are right for church or right for Sunday school or right for Awana. This is why, parents, you've got to talk to your kids and you've got to teach your kids and you've got to find out what they learned and you've got to correct their uh, mistakes and their assumptions that are not quite right. You never know what they really hear and you never know what they really understood. You've got to probe like Jesus did because we want to be right. And we need to understand that every part of life and every thought must be evaluated theologically. Does this square with Jesus? Does this square with the truth of the word of God? The word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. The we're told in the scripture. In the Psalms, we're told that every word of God is true or pure. Um, We're also told in John 17, Jesus said, sanctify them by thy truth. And then he tells us what truth is. Thy word is truth. Let's go back and uh, think about what happened. In Matthew 16, Peter made the great confession. Remember? Jesus asked them, who do men say that I am? And they said, oh, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah. And then Jesus asked that all-important question, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And uh, I think a lot of people today are content with, my church says that Jesus is the Christ. I don't necessarily, but my church does. That's dangerous. My pastor does. That's dangerous. My grandmother does. That's dangerous. Who do you say that Jesus is? And Jesus made that great confession, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you remember Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood didn't reveal this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. And that's where Jesus gives him the name Peter. Okay? 
So Peter, having answered this way before, having that commendation that comes from the Lord, this should have kind of been a no-brainer for him. But he didn't carry his confession in Matthew 16. He didn't carry that through until today. That's our problem. That's our problem. We think we can leave that back at 9 o'clock on Sunday morning, and we can't. That's not the purpose of it. This would have been... This would have prevented even his denial of the Lord later. Had he carried all of that through and someone said, aren't you with him? But Peter could not possibly deny him and have been thinking of his confession of him in Matthew 16. And that's what we do. And so Jesus' point is that a king does not exact taxes from his children. The king doesn't tax his kids. His kids live off of the taxes of the other people. And as the only begotten Son, fully God and fully man, the only begotten Son of God, Jesus was technically exempt from the temple tax, wasn't he? And the tax was for the operation, as we've already said, of the temple and uh, the priest and the sacrifices and all of that. Now, brought that up again because I want you to realize Jesus had need of neither. He didn't need a priest because he could go directly before God. In fact, he is the great and eternal high priest. And he didn't need the sacrifices, the offerings either. Why? Because Jesus never sinned. This is the Son of God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And kings don't pay taxes if you really believe that they're a king. Now, of course, if somebody came in here uh, on April 15th, and uh, we said, oh, did you get your taxes filed? And they go, oh, no, I'm the king of Oklahoma. I don't file or pay taxes. Okay, we'd laugh him out of here, wouldn't we? He'd be crazy. But Jesus, indeed, is the king above all kings and the Lord above all lords. And he is not subject to it. So let's go to number three and let's talk about the point. Peter said to him from strangers, and Jesus said to him, listen to this, then the sons are free. Now this speaks of the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now we don't have lords and ladies and nobility here in America. Sometimes I wonder about that. But uh, in terms of actual titles and all of that, we don't have that. And so when we think of a lord, somebody talks about a lord, we automatically think about Jesus. We say at our, our morning services, we confess together that old ancient confession from the church, Jesus is Lord. And so it uh, seems kind of strange to us when someone in England or somewhere else where they have a monarchy uh, would call someone a Lord or a lady, but that didn't mean that they were deity. That didn't mean that they were, you know, something that was supernatural. It meant that they had a title. It meant that they owned land. It meant that they had status. It meant that they had some degree of authority. The further back you go toward the Middle Ages, the more that authority uh, stood for something. And they had those even in the times of Christ. And so when it talks about the lordship of Christ, we're saying he has authority. He has ownership. He is something special. His title is above ours. He's not one of us the Lordship of Christ. And what we find in this 
thing that Peter is doing is he was basically saying, eh, he's just an average Joe like all of us. No, he's not. Don't ever forget it. He's not the man upstairs. He's not your buddy Jesus or anything like that. He is Lord and he is deserving of your respect. He rules and he reigns. This is the Lordship of Christ. You say, well, nobody can see it. That's true. His veiled but undiminished deity is still there. He didn't quit being God when he stepped out of heaven. He laid aside some of the rights, some of the privileges, some of the perks, we might call them, of being God. And he took on a human body and lived here among us. Can you imagine? He had never been locked into time and space before, but now he is. He had never been hungry or thirsty or tired before, but now he is. All of these kind of things are taking place, but he is still God. He is still Lord. And the fact that he did not need a sacrifice is the thing we need to think about. Why did he not need a sacrifice? It's because he would be the sacrifice for all of us. And that sacrifice would be offered freely. Can you imagine such a thing? You don't buy it. It can't be bought with silver or with gold. It's free to anyone who will believe, anyone who will receive the gift and surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. If you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then number four, I want you to notice the plural. What, uh, what does that matter? I think something pretty big. Verse 27, Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in the hook, take the fish out of the, that comes up first, and when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money and take that and give it to them. Here's the plural part. For me and you. For me and you. You know uh, why that's important to me? It blesses me to know that Jesus is always paying other people's debts, isn't he? When Jesus died on the cross, he died for God. Sometimes we're too quick to go to the, he died for me. Let's, let's get this clear. He died for God, according to the will of God, according to the plan of God, and to satisfy the justice of God. So God could give us mercy. That's what it means when it says, so he could be both the just and the justifier. Just meaning he's righteous, and the justifier meaning he makes us righteous. Only Jesus could do that. And so Jesus, even on the cross, his death was, it had this plural. He was dying for the glory of his Father, and dying for the justification of sinners like you and me. Jesus says we don't want to be an offense here. It's the Greek word scandalon, and it's translated offend. The word actually, the most literal meaning for it is to stumble or to trip up. And Jesus said, you know what? We don't want to stumble or trip up anyone here. And so we're going to uh, take care of this. Why did he do that? Because if Jesus had just simply said, Peter, I don't care what you said. I don't care what you committed me to. This is going to be a tremendous shame to Peter. 
you know those people are going to come back and say, "Uh uh-huh, you said your master pays it and he doesn't. And Peter looks like a fool. Peter looks like a liar. Peter looks like uh, something that he is not at this. It shames him, in other words. And Jesus said, you know what? I don't actually owe this, but I'm going to pay it anyway because I don't want you to look like a fool. I don't want you to look like a liar and I don't want to shame you. It also is going to trip people up because it's going to inflame his enemies. They're going to take this and they're going to run with it. And it's not time for him to be crucified yet. His hour has not yet come. There's no sense in stirring them up now for no particular reason. It also puts up unnecessary barriers and distractions about Jesus and his purpose. In Jesus' situation, let's just go ahead and let's pay it because we don't want this to become the topic of conversation right now. People that are listening to me, people that are talking about me, people that are hearing about me, they don't need to be hearing, well, he doesn't even pay the tax for the temple. They need to be hearing about their sin. They need to be hearing about the love of God. They need to be hearing about God's mercy and God's grace. They need to be hearing about the hypocrisy of the religious leaders, those type of things. And we don't need this distraction. You know, that would be a good thing for us to learn if we want to be Christ-like. There are those times when we bring up things at inappropriate times that don't help the situation. You know, the Bible says, as much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. That just means that there are some things you shouldn't say. That just means there's a time and a place for everything. And so often we get those things mixed up and we stir up trouble before it's necessary. We cause division before it's necessary. Now, there may be a time when it's necessary, but maybe not now. Maybe not now. Maybe not at this particular situation. We need to learn that from the Lord Jesus. And then also, he is telling us here, Peter go get this fish and the debt's going to be paid, but it's not going to be paid by you. A miracle is going to take place and the debt will be paid in full. And what Peter took out of that fish's mouth was enough to pay the temple tax for both him and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is indeed a miracle. It's a miracle to catch a fish that quick for one thing, but it's also a miracle that When you pull the fish out of the water and you open its mouth to take out the hook, lo and behold, you find the exact amount needed to pay the tax for these two people and to pay it in full. Now that also blesses me because when Jesus pays a debt, he pays all of it. It's not on the installment plan. He pays all of it paid in full. And obviously you're thinking what I'm thinking. He on the cross said, it is finished to telestai, full payment of the debt has been made. And not only did Jesus pay the debt for himself, I mean, that was the question after all, wasn't it? Does your master pay the temple tax? And Jesus could have said, just, you know, so everything's covered, there'll be enough in there for me. You go find your own tax in your own way and see if you can get it all taken care of. Uh, That's not what the Lord said. He said, go in there and catch it, take this and pay the tax. And notice that the tax was paid for the Lord and for Peter. And it makes me think about the wonderful thing on the cross when Jesus was satisfying the will of the Father, obeying his Father to the nth degree and paying our sin debt in full. 
both things are covered. For the glory of God in obedience to his Father, that's what Jesus owed his Father, and then paying our sin debt that we could never pay. That old song we used to sing, he paid a debt he did not owe. He owed a debt that he, uh, I owed a debt I could not pay, pardon me. I needed someone to wash my sins away. That's exactly what's happening here. Peter's debt is covered because Jesus paid a debt that he did not owe. So Jesus' signs are above all ritualistic and formal ritual like they were doing in the temple. The work at the temple pointed to him and was about him. He mercifully forgives our ignorance. He forgives our sin against him. And he also is the one who paid our eternal debt. Hell is a forever situation, you know. And he paid for it with his own blood. He, did it as, at his, he died as if he were the sinner so that he could treat us as if we were the righteous. John MacArthur says, God treated Christ as if he had lived my life on the cross. And now because of the cross, he treats me as if I had lived Christ's life. That's a pretty good exchange because Jesus pays the debt in full and he pays it for us as well as doing what he is supposed to do. And he does it. Remember what Jesus said? The king's kids are free and the Lord pays our debt in freedom and he indeed sets us free that we might freely worship him. So I hope that blessed you. I hope it challenged you. I hope it fed your soul a little bit and I'll pray that God blesses you as you pass this on to other people for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And after all, I say that word, pass it on, because it doesn't come from me. It comes from people way, way, way before me. In fact, it comes from God himself. There's nothing that we do that is ever original. We all learned it somewhere, and the people that taught us learned it somewhere else. And uh, it all goes back to, of course, the Lord who gives us his wonderful word. So proclaim it and proclaim it with joy and proclaim it with confidence. Spurgeon said, you don't have to defend the word of God. It's rather like a lion. All you have to do is turn it loose. It'll defend itself. Let's turn the lion of the word of God loose and let it do its work in our lives and in the lives of our people. God bless you. And thank you so much again for your time.